0: My guest today is Professor James Hughes, who is Associate Provost for Institutional Research, Assessment and Planning at University of Massachusetts, Boston. His research uh, interests span many areas, including public policy, community medicine, and sociology, as well as ethics. Welcome, Jim. Good to be here. Yeah, so thanks for doing this on a a weekend. Uh, You sent me a few um, pieces that you have written um, uh, on Medium, actually. So, uh, and I found all of them extremely interesting. Uh, I went to Google Scholar. I, I saw your papers there as well, but uh, I thought the the Medium articles are probably more approachable. So, let me start with those. Um, uh, so, the first one is Eco-socialism and the Techno-progressive Perspective. You say in 1983, while I was working in Sri Lanka the German Greens were first elected to the Bundestag uh, as a post-Marxist social theorist interested in ecological thinking and and someone uh, looking for a way to connect spirituality, new social movements, and traditional left. I began following green politics closely. So before we get into the discussion, Jim, I want to throw out all my biases. You say you know where I'm coming from. Sure. so I looked at your CV, and I, I thought that perhaps you and I overlapped at Hyde, Pal- Hyde Park. I was going to business school when you were there. Uh, I think you we were teaching there uh, at University of Chicago. And you were at Northwestern for a little while. And I think I overlapped with you there, there also. So we don't know each other, but we might have been in the same space-time coordinates <laughs> without, knowing, <laughs> and without knowing each other. And, and so... So just to uh, top that off, I grew up in South India in an in obscure place called Kerala that is, um, has a very uh, sort of weird um, political and economic stance. Um, it, it was one of the first, not one, one of the first, but the first Marxist governments elected into power uh, post-independence uh, in India. So that is sort of the backdrop uh, I grew up in, and then I came to Northwestern University of Chicago and learned a bunch of stuff. And so so there is a sort of a, a overlap between these two ideas. So so let me get back to your piece. Um, so techno-progressive uh, perspective. So what do, you, what do you mean by techno-progressive perspective? Well, uh,
1: let me rewind a little bit and go back to my grad school years. When I was in grad school, I... Uh, was working both on a journal that I had started called Eco Socialist Review and um, also uh, working in bioethics, teaching bioethics and studying bioethics. And I began to realize that I was a lot more techno-optimistic than most people in either environmental politics or bioethics. In bioethics, we had the joke that you only needed one word to be a bioethicist, and that's no, because that was going to be your response to every new innovation. And I was like, well, you know, if we invent a cure to cancer, convince me that it's a bad idea. You know, it's uh, I'm not, that's not my first response to things. And I had always been interested in the appropriate technology point of view. One of the things that led me to go to Sri Lanka and, and engage in some development work there was an interest in appropriate technology and the idea that te- new technological innovations could be good. Um, so. I began to try to work this out and discovered that there was an emerging subculture of people who were extremely techno-optimistic, and those were the extropian transhumanists online, Um, the beginnings of internet culture back then. So I got on and I started saying, well, you know, I'm a socialist and I'm interested in your ideas, and they were not having it because they were mostly anarcho-capitalists of one sort or another at the time, um, what we might call libertarians today. And so I began to try to work out, well, what is it that is this connection for me between the technology ideas and the political ideas? And uh, eventually I started a podcast called Change Surfer Radio and then wrote a book in the 2000s called Citizen Cyborg. And in that book, I argued for what I called a democratic transhumanist point of view, arguing that transhumanism was one end of the dialogue about the liberatory nature of technology, but that you could be a transhumanist, as as many transhumanists were, and have many different kinds of politics, and vice versa, you could be a techno skeptic and have many different kinds of politics. So I was trying to figure this out as a sociologist, political scientist, um, what's the the underlying uh, affinities between these ideas and what's their historical trajectory? How do we get here? Um, and I saw that back in the Enlightenment, um, the majority of Enlightenment thinkers were extremely techno optimistic and also radical in their Political and social views—they were for women's, you know, more or less more for women's equality, more likely to be for uh, universal suffrage and and things like that. So I said, well, you know, something's happened in the last 50 years where progressive politics has become more luddite, um, and also the progressive nature of bioethics, bioethics being a predominantly liberal milieu, had become more luddite. Um, and I would like to revive this uh, techno-optimistic perspective, progressive political perspective. What it what it is? So, um, democratic transhumanists didn't turn out to be a phrase that tripped off the tongue, but people started to refer to this kind of idea as techno-progressive, uh, to be both. Um, To be interested in the emerging technologies and the fact that they could have liberatory uh, potentials, but how um, we should also uh, embrace the social reforms that need to go along with them so that they don't exacerbate inequality, exacerbate authoritarianism and so forth. So that broad perspective, and it's also broader than transhumanism, transhumanism being, um, I was the executive director of the World Transhumanist Association at the time. And we started the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies to be more or less an explicitly techno-progressive think tank 15 years ago, Um, and we have done a lot to develop that perspective over time. But that particular essay that I wrote uh, recently was a response to an effort by some French transhumanists to articulate what they thought um, a transhumanist approach to environmental politics would be. And as every manifesto written by a committee, it, it, it does not hold together very well. But the main thing that I was uh, critical of them about was that there are many issues that are on the table, that have been on the table for decades, um, that are a left and right version of ecological politics and also, uh, a techno-optimistic versus techno-pessimistic version of ecological politics. And there are folks at the intersection of those things, the techno-optimists who also have a left critical perspective. So I was saying here's the folks who are actually doing that kind of thinking. So there are people who are interested in things like nuclear power uh, being a potential solution to our one of to our some of our energy needs under climate change. Um, but most of the left is opposed to nuclear power for whatever reason, and um, the people who tend to champion nuclear power are the nuclear power industry who have their own interests and their own politics around this. So it's like, what, what would a progressive approach to promoting something like nuclear power, genetically modified organisms, um, being opposed to population control, because it's very clear that population control is not necessary because we're gonna have uh, uh, a plateauing of population in the next couple decades. So, um, trying to articulate what that, that vision was. And um, I can't say that the French were terribly impressed with my intervention, but uh, I do think that there is a, an emerging group of thinkers out there that I'm, I'm addressing.
0: Yeah, so, so let me push on this techno-optimism idea a little bit, Jim. Um, so, so I've been in technology almost all my life, um, and my feeling is that it's really difficult to predict technology. Um, and so anytime we say we are optimistic about something, um, maybe I'm misunderstanding uh, this. Uh, optimism basically means that I have some prediction that things are going to work out using technology, um, which which may not be... So, so technology comes to us in, in step function changes, as you know. Uh, It doesn't come in, you know, sort of linear um, fashion, right? And so in some sense, it's a Poisson jump in a stochastic function (laughs) mathematics, right? So uh, if that Poisson jump does not happen, we will be in regime A. If Poisson jump did happen, we'll be in regime B. So for instance, I am optimistic. I am techno-optimistic about fusion as a just to throw throw something out right so if we get fusion we get near zero cost energy and and many of the things that most of the people worry about environmental degradation uh, how to produce energy all of those things go away but it's quite possible that we won't get fusion in which case all these things are still on the table and so in a in a, in a situation where you have very, very different regimes post Poisson jump. How do you formulate policy? I mean, how do you think about this in that context? Well, let's go back to
1: what optimism means in this context, because there's two um, ways that it works. One is optimism about the likelihood of a technology being developed. And um, in our debates about, for instance, human-level artificial intelligence, there are certainly people who are optimistic about it coming about and there are people who don't think it will ever come, or come about. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily correspond to, if it did come about, how optimistic are you about its effects on the world? Because some of the people who think it's absolutely certain to come about are very pessimistic about it, the effects it's gonna have on the world. So um, optimism in that second sense is what is what is your guess about its effect on things? And I would say that um, although I would sometimes describe myself actually as a techno-realist, most of in the context of the debates, I'm both a techno optimist in terms of the likelihood of certain things eventually coming about, and an optimist in terms of compared to most people, about the likelihood that it could have positive benefits. So, you can imagine the spectrum of that second thing of what's its effect going to be, going from like Luddite to techno-pessimism, to something in the middle, to techno-optimist, to techno-utopian. The techno-utopians are the people who say, all new technologies will have beneficial effects, don't worry about it. And not very many people are really that extreme, but some people sound like that sometimes. Um, And at the other end, the techno-Luddites, the Luddites are people who say, stop the world, we've gone too far, roll it back 20 years or whatever. But techno-optimism for me is to say, in general, it's better for humanity to understand things and be able to control the natural world than for us not to be able to. That most of the things that we consider to be progress over the last couple thousand, tens of thousands of years have involved technological innovations that have made our lives easier and expanded our capacity to uh, encourage our own growth, our own, um, you know, mental health and so forth. Mental health is actually more complicated, but at least our our capacity to be more sophisticated beings. Um, and so I'm generally optimistic about that, but that does not mean that there are not apocalyptic or catastrophic risks associated with technologies or that technologies can't be used in a careless or hostile or military way that would be you know, catastrophic. So um, I, I think that that's where the politics comes in. It's like, well, then what do you do about those potential risks? The techno-utopians or techno-libertarians would argue that um, governments will just muck things up if they try to get involved. So don't bring the government in. The, I think the techno-progressives generally are for there being some kind of regulatory regime that determines which technologies should proliferate and which shouldn't, and how to how to ensure universal access to technologies which are actually beneficial, so that only the rich don't have them. And um, so that's what I mean by techno optimism in that in that context.
0: Yeah. So 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 j- just for debate, Jim. So the, from the whole spectrum of techno pessimism tech to techno utopianism. Um, there is some assumption that uh, you can control technology through a regulatory framework, through policies. Suppose that that is not the case. That you know the cat is already out of the bag in artificial intelligence. Um, there is really nothing we could do to control technology. If that were true, would would um, would anything change? Well,
1: yes, and I think that that's an important question because we live in a world, we don't just live um, under a, one government, we live under many governments. And in that framework, you have to say, well, what would the consequences be if a country, say China, um, were to go full throttle with some technologies that the West or the developing world or whoever decided not to permit? Um, I think it's actually interesting what's happening in China now because China um, under Xi Jinping is beginning to adopt uh, many of the kinds of controls on big uh, on big tech that we have talked about in the West and sometimes don't have the political capacity to enact. Um, but you know because the CCP is so dominant they, they can just say hey tomorrow no one's going to um, trade Bitcoin anymore which is yesterday's <laughs> announcement they just banned Bitcoin um, so or, or any cryptocurrency. So um, I think that you have to say well, okay, good on China if if, if we want to control technologies but what if China decided to start genetic, genetically engineering kids with super intelligence or you know superpowers or whatever, and the and the West said, oh we can't do that, and then the billion and a half Chinese become exponentially more powerful and intelligent than the rest of us. Um, well, that would be a significant pressure on the rest of us to figure out what our uh, response to that's going to be, um, hopefully a non-military uh, response, but it might encourage us to adopt some of those technologies. So I have made that argument in the past that um, liberal democracies will do themselves no favors. And I, and I make the argument uh, also in the context of the Third Reich. You know, people say, well, what if Hitler got a hold of X, Y, and Z technologies? He says, look, the Third Reich killed millions with railroad tracks and uh, a gas. And if we had banned railroad tracks and a gas in the West, it would have had no effect on whether the Third Reich was able to kill those people. All it would have done is weakened our capacities. Well, the gas, we didn't have much use for Zyklon B, but thank God. Uh, But we had, uh, you know, there, there are things that uh, I think the liberal democracies need to think about as a way of, of part of the international competition, for instance, around artificial intelligence. If there are certain capacities of artificial intelligence in, for instance, strategic uh, impl- um, applications in military and defense, that we decide, you know, we've seen Terminator, we don't want to do that. And the Chinese are like, We didn't see Terminator, so we're going to do that. Then we might be at a significant disadvantage, and that might have long-term implications for the world. So I do think we have to take uh, the international context into account. But that also raises the question of transnational governance. I mean, we've, we've had three decades of war now related to weapons of mass destruction, or at least conflict. Uh, looking for weapons in Iraq, trying to put pressure on Iran, trying to put pressure on North Korea. Um, The weapons of mass destruction, for the most part in those cases, were nuclear, which is relatively easy to detect. The weapons of mass destruction of the future may be able to be cooked up in something the size of a house, um, you know, that is very difficult to detect. So, you know, this gets at um, this whole debate over the Wuhan bio, uh, alleged bioweapons research. It's like, it, do we not want to research the potential bioweapons and figure out what they might be so that we could have, uh, uh preparedness and vaccines ready for those? Or do we just want to leave it to that biohacker in, uh, Kabul who figures out how to make the, the next bioweapon? Um, so, I think there are some very important challenges there, but um, I, I favor transnational weapons uh, you know, treaties to control weapons of mass destruction and verification regimes, but we've seen how well that has worked in the past. It's not an optimistic picture.
0: Yeah, I, I wasn't even thinking about that, Jim. So that makes the picture a lot more complicated. So the, the international context, we have countries, we have 200 different countries, they have sovereign um, rights to make their own policies, Uh, And so and United Nations or international organizations haven't been, I would argue, not very effective in in any of these things. Uh, So it's up to the countries. And the the broader question is, this is not in the paper, but I I wanted to get your perspective on it. The broader question is why do countries exist? And, And countries existed perhaps initially to segment people based on some sort of race or color or something then they exist to segment people on economic reasons. And when economics is sort of um, widespread, then countries will exist for technology reasons. So you could have a country in Bangalore or a Silicon Valley or Austria that exists for just technology reasons because they want to um, supercharge that's called artificial intelligence so then uh we're back to sort of the regulatory uh, policy question um do the do the 8.4 billion people have any control over any of these future outcomes and if we don't you know we can talk about it <laughs> but does it really make any difference well
1: as a as a kind of historical futurist or a sociological futurist i generally am optimistic that economic uh, that are both economic and political systems will become more and more integrated and uh, larger so that we have been evolving from tribes to city states to uh, kingdoms to nation states to transnational organizations like the European Union and and so forth. Um, I think that the relationship between the economic and technological on the one hand and the political boundaries, as you point out, is an important piece of the puzzle because just on the crudest basis, if you don't have the economic and technological might to defend your territory and to defend your independence, you get absorbed one way or the other into these other entities. So um, I've been a huge fan of world federalism and the European project and and projects like that, that are attempting to create these new relatively democratic models of what a a future integrated world might look like. But below that layer, there are many different kinds of transnational cooperation and transnational um, uh, influence and pressure that can be brought to bear. So for instance, the Uh, international weapons of mass destruction uh, uh, efforts. Um, You know, there's the UN uh, efforts to monitor the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And then there are the different kinds of economic sanctions that are brought to bear on countries like Iran or North Korea. Those are examples of transnational action and transnational governance um, brought to bear on countries that are not compliant with that, those international agreements. Um, It's, If we move into a Cold War period, a new Cold War or tripolar world with Russia, China, the United States, European Union going in different directions, then, yes, it's going to continue to be very difficult to to enact some of those kinds of controls. But um, I think there's sufficient weight behind, for instance, climate change as a truly transnational challenge that um, you can imagine Um, as with the Paris Climate Accords, which were not enough, but which are moving in the right direction, um, you can imagine transnational uh, agreements and agencies that would begin to function as more of a transnational government.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm very attracted to transnationalism, Jim, but I'm very pessimistic, I would say, uh, about transnationalism. Uh, just, just, Just looking at recent data, right? So, um, you know, we got, we got 330 million people here in the U.S., uh, EU and, um, and U.K. in combination twice that much. But that is just about a billion people out of the 8.4 billion people that we have. Um, and so any progress that we see, and actually I would argue we don't, we don't see much progress in the U.S. at all, uh, but, but any progress that we see is still small it's sort of the, the scale-based context that we are trying to analyze, right? I agree with your pessimism.
1: It's been very difficult to be to remain optimistic or to, to remain engaged with the, the possibility of world federalism in the current context. But if you look at some of the international surveys of, for instance, um, I think it's Gallup that does a survey where they ask, would you die for your country? And You see that um, that kind of nationalism is very high in some places and low in others, and that younger people are less and less likely to evince those kind of strong nationalist sentiments. Now, the relationship between age and nationalism is not uniform across the world. There are places like China where young people are very nationalistic. But um, in general, I find it encouraging that younger people are less and less engaged with national identity. And sometimes more engaged with subcultural identities that may be transnational, um, not necessarily being a world citizen, but you know, being a fan of BTS. You know, I'm a, I'm a part of the BTS army, uh, which is a transnational army. So,
0: yeah, and, and politicians are very aware of this, right? So, if transnationalism sets in, it's going to be really difficult for some people to get elected. Um, I I wouldn't mention any names, but, um, you know, the the recent leader of the West and the current leader of the big country in the East, uh, these guys cannot get elected if if transnationalism really sets in. So it is to their
1: advantage
0: to assure that, you know, this doesn't happen.
1: Well, that's certainly there's been a rise of ultranationalism in the last decade. Um, and so the question is, what does that mean? And what does it portend about the future in general? Those ultranationalist movements have been less popular among the young. You know, you f- look at, for instance, at the Brexit vote in England, young people were distinctly opposed to Brexit and older people in favor. Um, age is one of the correlates or predictors of voting for Trump and that brand of ultranationalism. um, I don't know so much about the Russian polling, but I presume it's similar in r- places like Russia and relationship to Putin. So, uh, hopefully, as we have generational transition um, over the years, the decades, we'll see a decline of this particular upsurge of ultranationalism. But it's important to th- say, well, what does this upsurge mean? I think it's a last gasp of um, the. In reaction to the decline of older forms of politics, like the older form of social democracy or Marxist-Leninism that had been the dominant um, kind of ways of expressing your discontent with the existing order um, after World War II, fascism had fallen out of favor. um, But those flavors of, of rejecting the existing order and saying we want something different had really declined. And, um, and so these nationalists, uh, the currency of nationalism and race and language and religion continues. And so they were currencies that could be mobilized. So I hope it's the last gasp of that and that we'll be transitioning to something beyond that. But it could get worse. We'll see.
0: <laughs> You're an internal optimist, Jim. Uh, yes. So, <laughs> so I want to go to another piece that you have written, uh, The Politics of Moral Enhancement tripping our way to social democracy. You say, as a teenage Buddhist socialist, I wrote essays about how I plan to work on enlightenment while trying to change the world. The connection between moral enhancement and political change has been on my mind ever since. Um, Have things changed? Have things improved? Well,
1: um, I would say that I've always been a pretty bad Buddhist, but then most Buddhists are bad Buddhists, Um, but uh, in terms of not meditating enough um, and not making enough progress on the the checklist of enlightenment that I thought there might be back then. And these days I'm more interested in the prospects of technology giving us some shortcuts to various kinds of self-improvement. And my idea of what self-improvement involves has matured. It's like um, when I was a teenager, it was reaching, you know, non-binary states of mind where you're one with the universe. Now it's like being able to stay on your diet, you know, getting up the motivation to exercise every day, uh, not yelling at people when you're angry, you know, those kinds of ordinary things. And it turns out that there's an enormous amount and a flood of continuing research on moral, neuropsychology, more neurochemistry that relates to our capacities for self-control, empathy, fairness, um, you know, all those virtues that we, that I used to consider conservative ideas, but now understand are, are central to almost everything that we talk about. Um, and so, This project that I've been working on for a long time called Cyborg Buddha Project is about this moral enhancement debate and about the prospects for and especially within the moral enhancement debate. There's insufficient um, uh, um, examination of the social determinants and the social constraints on a lot of these things. There's a, a critique of moral psychology called situationism, which says, look, you put anybody in Abu Ghraib and they're gonna act like the soldiers did at Abu Ghraib. They could have the highest amount of empathy and so forth, but the social pressures can overwhelm you in certain circumstances. And I think that's absolutely true. But um, there's, there is some relationship. You know, Societies sh- help shape our personalities, our personalities help shape our societies. And you see, for instance, in Northern Europe that um, not only are they more social democratic, but they're also more trusting Of fellow citizens. Well, which comes first? Is it chicken or egg? You know, there's some some relationship between those two things. That if you trust your neighbors more, uh, instead of saying, oh, they're just going to waste money on alcohol and drugs and being welfare queens, uh, then don't give them any money. But if you trust your neighbors, you might say, well, that person's unemployed and disabled. I need to help my fellow Swede or Dane. So, um, you know, which comes first with the personality? Anyway. I do think that one of the directions is from the person up. Um, And if you take that seriously, you have to say, well, what could we do um, to increase the individual level of self-control, compassion, fairness, intelligence, the other kinds of virtues that we think are important? And then in particular, some of these things have moral and political content. Um, And if you look at, for instance, the moral psychology around... Uh, politics, the uh, work of John Haidt, I found very instructive. I don't like some of his conclusions, but he's been able to show that um, uh, people who tend to be on the liberal end of political spectrum in Europe and the United States, and and increasingly he's finding this around the world, um, are people who very much uh, value fairness and not harming people as, as two central values. And that on the other end, um, the conservatives tend to value those things a little bit less and value more respect for hierarchy, respect for in-group preferences and respect for sacred things. So, for instance, burning the flag as a sacred symbol is very offensive uh, to the conservative end of the spectrum. Now, you can pick this apart. There are certainly things that liberals consider sacred. In similar ways, or certain kinds of hierarchy they might respect. So, but in general, I think this works. And what, one of the consequences of that, if, if you look at the history of moral thought, a lot of religious moral thought has been involved in these more conservative moral interpretations. And what happened was that we had the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment said, look, you should leave your neighbors alone unless they're really harming you. And we should generally try to create a society in which we all have an equal uh, uh, capacity to pursue our own ends in this world. And um, and on those grounds, you can't go to your neighbor and say, you shouldn't do that because it offends my respect for the sacred, or you shouldn't do that because you need to respect authority or because it violates the in-group. In fact, the enlightenment says, love everybody, treat everybody the same, whereas the conservative morality says uh, my race, my tribe, my nation. So if you have these two different kinds of moralities, you could imagine people tweaking morality in two different directions. You could imagine if the Taliban gets a hold of these technologies and wants to use them, then they would uh, make people uh, more angry at the infidel or you know, more respecting of the hierarchy of the mullah or whatever. Um, versus the way that they would be used in the West. So we have to kind of put that on the table, that moral enhancement is not a, a universal that everyone's going to understand what is good in terms of enhancing morality. Um, so the social democratic part of it is, if the core of social democracy are these two values, the uh, freedom and equality, um, what are the things that, what are those two uh, uh, moral psychologies and what are the kinds of experiences or drugs or therapies, interbehavioral interventions that might encourage more of that kind of caring and compassion and um, respect for other people and respect for fairness and equality and that kind of thing. So that was what the the core of that essay was about. And it's also a bit of an argument against the some of the trends in the illiberal left. I think that you know the the illiberal left is a far lesser threat today than it was during the Cold War or the twentieth century, compared especially to the rise of the illiberal right, which is you know, ruling a lot of the world at this point. Uh, but there is still an illiberal left as well. People who have the moral psychology of authoritarians in respect to various left values, and um, so talking about the importance of um, of tolerance, of intellect, the intellectual virtues, uh, respect for diversity. Um, uh, uh, willingness to interrogate your own assumptions and to enter into conversations with other people with a certain amount of intellectual humility. I think that's also core to the social democratic approach as opposed to a more illiberal left approach.
0: Yeah, so I want to touch on two things, uh, Jim, uh, on what you said. One is uh, sort of the neuroscience aspect of it. Um, So there is a lot of data that shows that, you know, the conservative brain works differently from the liberal brain. And so if you have a world where half the people are Apple and half the people are IBM, um, the I mean, the expectations are reasonably well predicted. It's not like I can implement an OS, uh, you know, Apple operating system on IBM, but I can emulate that. <laughs> so I want to come to that. That's my second part of my question. So I could emulate uh, a uh, Microsoft operating system on Apple. I can emulate an Apple operating system on IBM, but it is different. Emulation is not, you know, sort of integral to the architecture. And so I think there's a lot of cosmetics uh, that go on also. So I, as, you can, as you can sense, I think uh, a lot of cynicism around this. So ethics was a big deal in the 90s and 2000s when I was going through business school there was a competition between business schools on how many ethics classes they're going to have. The more ethics classes you have, the presumption was the more ethical graduates you will create. There's a distinct negative relationship between the number of ethics classes and uh, you know sort of the criminality of graduates of that business school. And so, so that presumption didn't really hold um, that well. And I see something similar happening in empathy. Empathy has been very fashionable. Everybody's talking about it. Business schools haven't really gotten onto it, uh, but once they do, there'll be a lot of empathy causes. Um, the idea would be when you become a CEO, you go to a company, you go talk to your employees, you have to look this way, you have to talk this way, you have to feel, or no, no, you don't have to feel. You just have to appear to feel this way um so the cosmetics of what we believe to be useful uh is highly manufactured in our society so do do they really add much value
1: well first on the uh, value of ethics education i think having been an ethics educator i paid attention to that literature and you're absolutely right that i think the big upshot is that it either uh, educating people about ethics either has no effect on their ethical behavior or it gives them the tools to rationalize anything that they really wanted to do. And which brings us back to the kind of debate within the moral enhancement field about um, enhancing impulses versus enhancing ethical cognition. If all you're doing is changing cognition and the impulses are still the same, then um, what people usually do is they reason backwards to rationalize their impulses. but if we can change people's impulses and reduce the amount of xenophobia, reduce the amount of, um, uh, you know, increase the capacity for intellectual ambiguity, you know, tolerance of intellectual ambiguity, those kinds of things, um, so that people don't spend as much time rationalizing their biases, um, then I think we can change people's behavior. Now, within the moral enhancement debate there's also a distinction between people who think that the solution lies in doing one thing enhancing one thing versus those who like me would argue for an ensemble that having a good moral character is really an ensemble of of character traits that balance each other you can be too compassionate too empathetic you can get burned out you could um, you know sacrifice your own and your loved ones interests in the co- and good causes in ways that are counterproductive and um, you have to balance all of these virtues with the others. Um, you know, you could be too much like Spock and not enough like Kirk, too much like Kirk, not enough like Spock. So um, I think we we need to understand that. And then there's the situationist critique, which is that um, even if we change people and make them have good moral character on a number of dimensions, you put them in terrible situations and you're gonna have some terrible results. Less terrible than you would have had otherwise, but still some terrible results. So when it comes to business ethics, I'll let you pick which of those. (laughs) I think it's a little bit of all of it. But uh, yeah, we, we weren't doing exactly what I'm talking about. We were just trying to teach people how to think about and argue about ethics. It's like, oh, you want to be a businessman, you should do socially responsible investing. It's like, okay, I'm socially responsible investing in the good tobacco instead of the bad tobacco. Um, and but and you're still a profit-driven entity, so you're still going to be in that context. But
0: Yeah. And also, Jim, would you say that initial conditions matter a lot? So what your parents told you the first five to 10 years, um, when you were in sort of a binary decision situations, what guidance they gave you in those situations in the first five to 10 years, map a lot and in some sense, you know, you're sort of installing an operating system. Once it's installed, yeah, you can can put a bunch of apps on it to to try to emulate things, but if the hardware, if the fundamentally as a human being, you are architected in the first five to 10 years, it becomes really difficult.
1: Yes, well, especially on the left and and in the academic left, it's been unfashionable to talk about uh, Both early childhood and genetic influences on our behavior. Um, That kind of behavioral determinism or genetic determinism has been out of fashion for a good 50 years. Um, But I think that there are people who are beginning to uh, take it more seriously. And so it's difficult to, as you indicated, it's difficult to pull apart the nature-nurture of the influences of previous generations. It could be that it's the modeling of parents that are doing a lot of the work um, or the genetics. But to the extent that we've been able to look at things like the inheritance of uh, capacity for empathy or conversely, um, empathy deficits like autism or uh, psychopathy, uh, to uh, the capacity for intelligence um, of various kinds, self-control, uh, do- the dopaminergic uh, variants that are related to ver- various kinds of self-control. It seems like for most of these things, uh, about 50% of our moral behavior, um, uh, the personality traits that are related to moral behavior are determined genetically. So even if you're raised in a different family, separated twin studies and so forth. Um, and then you have the fact that if your parents had those traits, they're going to model those traits for you. So You know, growing up ADD in an ADD household is going to make you even more ADD. So um, it's there's a feedback loop between all these things. Um, But if to the extent that we can't go back and fix your childhood, we might be able to fix your brain. And um, and I think for most virtues, um, it's impossible to imagine a liberal society that gives people the option to use these new uh, neurotechnologies to change these what were previously uh, intractable parts of their personality to make themselves uh, uh, what they would consider better. And most of our understandings of what would be better are the same. Most people would rather have more self-control than less. Most people would rather be more caring than less uh, and so forth. So I think that that's my optimistic vision. Um, I I don't want to live in a society where, uh, like China today, where um, you have to log in to the Xi Jinping Thought app once a day and demonstrate that you read, you know, that the facial recognition determines whether your your face is looking at the text or not, and that you have to read a certain amount of Xi Jinping Thought every day in order to improve your, your personality as a hero as a worker. I don't want to live in that society, but I do want to live in a society that says, look, it's, in general, it's better to uh, have certain kinds of civic virtues, to vote, to respect other people, to not be a racist, um, and um, and here's the tools, if you feel like you have problems with those things, here's the tools for how to fix them.
0: Yeah, um, again, you know, uh, I just want to touch conceptually, Jim, um, on, on something to get to your perspective. So um, last election in the US, 75 million people voted for somebody who showed um, very clear deception. Um, You know, it doesn't take a lot of brain power to see the deception, but 75 million people voted, and I would bet in in uh, in a few years that 75 million people are going to vote again um, in the same way. It doesn't really so so. This is what takes me to this Apple IBM hypothesis. So if you if you are an Apple you are set. I mean, it doesn't really matter what happens. It, it doesn't really matter if IBM comes out with a new AI program whatever. You're not going to get it. You know, it, it is... It is it, when Apple goes out, that is how Apple is going to vote. So are we sort of set hardware-wise um, in a position that we cannot change anything? There, there, there is no real real way to change uh, using data, analytics, logic, rationality, none of those things really matter.
1: Well, yes. I mean, I think COVID has shown the relationship between medicine, science, politics in a way that has been very dramatic. In the context, in the framework or the imagination that I was having about having these technologies be available and offering them to the public, clearly some parts of the public are going to say, no, I don't trust it. I, I, I don't feel like that's authentic. And some of the public's going to say that's another part of Bill Gates's conspiracy to turn us all into robots and or the liberals to. Um, and especially if they are, in fact, going to um, have an effect on moral intuitions and political uh, attitudes, then we're you know, we gonna have that kind of debate. Now, in the current context, you can say, for public safety, we're still not gonna tell you you have to get vaccinated, but we're gonna say that businesses can say they can fire you if you don't get vaccinated, right? In the current context, if you decide, well, um, I don't believe in uh, anti-harassment training. My firm wants me to have an anti-harassment training or to get fired. But I just don't believe in it. It's the firm's right to fire you. It's the the government's right to say you can't be a contractor, you can't serve in the military or whatever if you don't undergo certain kinds of education, um, testing that determine that you're the kind of citizen that they want to have in that firm or that, uh, that kind of employment. So I think it's possible to imagine in the future that instead of just saying and, and by the way, I don't believe in anti-harassment training because it generally doesn't work, just like you were saying about ethics. It, 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 to the extent that it works, it may have a negative effect because it makes people resentful about the things that they're hearing. But if we were to say, we want, don't want people to harass each other, and instead of firing Joe, who has harassed some of his female employees, we're going to give him the option of taking this pill. Um, and, if, and it's voluntary. He can either quit or he can take the pill. Um, But if he takes the pill, this pill has been shown to reduce harassment behavior 50%. I can imagine that kind of future, those kinds of interventions. Just as you have today, you know, if you don't take your antipsychotic meds, Um, Even if your firm is subject to the Americans with Disabilities Act, you're not allowed to fire people for just having a disability and a mental health disability is a disability. But if you've been prescribed an antipsychotic med and you say, I just don't like them, I'm going to come to work crazy. They can say, well, I'm sorry, but that's outside the scope of the ADA. You have to, we're going to fire you. So we already have the circumstance where we use the soft power of the business sector or the state to encourage people to take drugs uh, to make behavioral modifications in the direction of being a more civil society, and I think we'll have more and more of those tools to debate in the future.
0: Yeah, so I don't have a problem with the policy in the COVID context, but uh, more generally, there's a bit of a slippery slope. Um, you know, after having uh, worked in pharmaceutical industry, I can tell you that. Um, It is, uh, we we really don't have any deterministic views as to what a product is going to do to a human being. Um, We have some probabilistic expectations uh, to cross-sectional population, but we don't know what that's going to do to uh, Jim or Sally. Um, If uh, if any pharmaceutical company is telling you that, they're probably lying to you (laughs) Uh, because every human is different. Well, this gets
1: this gets back to the techno-progressive critique. It's like if you uh, buy every press release from Big Pharma, then yes, you're going to be disappointed. And if you've been paying attention to the medical literature for any amount of time, you'll see every week, you know, this. here's the cure for cancer, here's the cure for depression and so on. And then 10 years later, it turns out, well, SSRIs, they were suppressing half of the research and they actually don't perform that much better than placebo in many cases. So many of the things that we were talking about as potentially changing human nature 20 years ago um, have turned out to be far less Effective than we thought that they were. Now, still, I think neuroscience is advancing and we will have more and more effective ways to change behavior, change mood, for instance. I think um, the problems that we have with methamphetamine or with fentanyl today are going to be, uh, you know, in retrospect, um, just uh, as we consider, oh, well, this is a bigger problem than morphine was. Um, the, the drugs of the future are going to be even bigger problems. So I, I, I think we're going to continue to um, uh, increase the efficacy of our psychopharmacological and psychotechnological interventions. One of the directions will be also brain-machine interfaces, but it's hard to predict how quickly those will come. But um, the progress with, for instance, uh, brain dust, the uh, putting little particles that have... Uh, two-way communication capacity uh, with neurons and extra outside the brain, um, that's one of the avenues that may eventually allow us to begin to change some of these things through direct technological brain machine interfaces.
0: Yeah, I have to say, I prefer, uh, I mean, uh, clearly, if we can educate a population, so again, we have 330 million people, 70 million of them have declined to take the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, even though the data is really robust, that it's really going to help you, uh, 70 million uh, have refused to take it. Now, the, I mean, we could go, go the policy route and say, you know, every employer, every large employer can come down with a fiat uh, to say, you have to take COVID-19 vaccine to come to work. For me, that is a very inelegant method. We have to really ask, What is happening to the 70 million people? Um, Are they lacking information? Are they lacking the ability to process information? Then there has to be a huge education campaign, right? That's, That's the only way we're going to solve this problem, I think.
1: Well, there are lots of things going on. But as you mentioned, one of the big dimensions of this is the political psychology of conservatism versus liberalism. Liberalism has... And this gets back to the techno-progressive idea. I think there's a a long relationship between the values of liberalism and scientific empiricism, uh, respect for scientific expert, expertise, um, the relationship of uh, uh, education and understanding of the state. So if you if you're someone on the right, you're not only more inclined to um, have conspiratorial thinking, to uh, to reason backwards to your religious biases or your racial biases but you're also less likely to understand because you're less educated in general you're less likely to understand the regulatory um, process the um, state agencies and to, and to know people that uh, who are in those kinds of agencies or who 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 practice science and and so there are all kinds of reasons why that uh, occurs but as we have discussed um, Yes, you even in a liberal society you can allow certain people not to uh, but to practice these things which are obviously beneficial but the rub comes with for instance kids you say well you may uh, have a, have decided not to do this but we think if you're going to make a medical decision for your kids that's really not in their interest um, then that we can intervene as a state or create pressure on you. So uh, vaccination mandates for schools, for instance, are a pressure on parents to to vaccinate their kids, even if those parents might have been opposed to vaccination themselves or for their kids. Um, and I think in general, societal pressures and social norming does have an effect over time. We're, the COVID situation is so extreme because of its um, being tied up in this partisan way. And that has occurred in some other places like uh, Brazil, um, uh, Hungary. There are certain other, uh, India with Modi. Um, There are certain other places where the far right has really decided to oppose uh, any serious response to COVID as some kind of political issue. But I don't think that in general, um, uh, things will be as partisanly divided around these kinds of things. Now, if, if there was a drug. So for instance, psychedelics, Um, I think you can look at the history of psychedelics and say, how did it come into the public consciousness in the first place? It came in uh, associated with the hippie movement, you know, drop out, tune in, turn on, Um, and that it was associated with radical left politics. It was associated with sexual experimentation. So of course it was going to push all kinds of buttons in the public just as marijuana had been associated with Mexican and Black uh, populations, and so pushed all kinds of racial racial buttons. Um, now, it turns out that psychedelics actually do have a, a lasting, one of the most significant effects on personality that we've seen from any psychopharmaceutical, SSRIs also have some, but psychedelics have a, a lasting effect on openness, openness to new ideas, and uh, certain you know uh, attitude towards life and uh, PTSD other kinds of things but it, openness is one of the principal determinants of social liberalism if you're if if your response to seeing somebody in a hijab or seeing some somebody with a different hair uh, skin color is not immediately aversion but curiosity um, then you're going to be have a different politics so if we And we're beginning to see now politics around psychedelics not just uh, cannabis legalization, but places like Oakland have proposed the legalization of psychedelics. Um, If we see uh, a big fight about psychedelics, it has a distinctly political dimension in and of itself in a way that COVID really didn't. You know, COVID was just something that Trump decided because he's a jerk to oppose. But um, psychedelics really are political.
0: Yeah. I mean at the heart of it is sort of a clan effect. Um so if you if you take a subscription to Clan X as opposed to Clan Y, um once you are in, in the umbrella of Clan X, you sort of buy um the philosophy, you you sort of buy the manifesto. And even if you don't understand it, even if you don't agree with some of it, you are sort of forced into into that concept right I and mean, it happens both on the left and the right uh i think these are equally faulty, in many ways
1: yeah one of our um members of the institute for ethics and emerging technologies community is a guy named john danaher who works in ireland and he recently wrote an essay about uh, uh axiology the trying to predict the future of ethics um and i think it's as difficult to predict the future of ethics as it is to predict the future in general. But um, one of the things I've said frequently, for instance, is that um, I'm pretty sure that our descendants will consider eating meat to be disgusting. Now, I I have uh, tried to be a vegetarian, but I'm I'm just not, I'm not a vegetarian. So, and and I have rationalized, used my ethics to rationalize why I don't have to be a vegetarian. But I'm pretty sure our descendants will eventually become more and more vegetarian, Um, at at least because of synthetic meat and all the alternatives that they're gonna have. Um, And so if we think about our existing ethics, I don't think there's anything said about them. I know that I was raised in a particular uh, late twentieth century white uh, middle class, liberal, secular milieu. And that has shaped my utilita- my approach to utilitarianism and my approach to social democracy and all these kinds of things it's shaped. But um, will, would if I had had the same you know genes and been raised fifty years in the future, or fifty years in the past, would I have a different politics? absolutely. i'm I'm just doing survey analysis right now. And I'm looking at the relationship between age and identifying as LGBTQ. And in the population I'm, I'm looking at, um, more than 50% of the people below 22 are identifying as LGBTQIA plus, all the different things you could identify with. And only like, you know, 5% of the people over 50. And wh- the thing that changed wasn't the genes, if there's a, you know, the, to the extent that there's a genetic component in our sexual and gender identities, it's the thing that changes society. Society changed and people said, well, I, my friends are all re-questioning their gender, or their commitment to the gender binary. Maybe I don't have to be a man or a woman either. You know, it's like uh, maybe I can have an alternative sexuality. So I, I definitely think some of these things that we consider to be uh, ineluctable truths today will be questioned in the future. One of the people who's uh, interesting on this is Sam Harris, who I like some of what Sam Harris has done in the past. He's Really stepped in it sometimes, but he also wrote this book where he argued that it was absolutely clear that liberal Western democracy was the end of history. You know that it was the best of all possible worlds. And it's like Sam, you know, if you talk to the Taliban, um, they just are going to come to different conclusions, and there's really no way You, you. He says, well, but look, they're healthier, they live longer, they. You know, they have all these good things. And it's like, yeah, but if you talk to the Taliban, that's not what they measure it by, right? They measure it by something else. And there's no way to finally adjudicate one way of measuring it versus another. Unless you're unless you just believe in kind of evolutionary theory, which I do, which is that the the values that lead to collective success will be more likely to be propagated. But that is no guarantee. Uh, unfortunately, that the ones that I happen to prefer now are going to lead to collective success. I would like it to be true, but I'm not sure about it.
0: Yeah, I, I remember you mentioning Peter Singer in one of your one of your pieces, I think. And Peter has been on the show as well, and obviously, he's doing a lot of work um, in this area. Um, you know, for me, uh, I'm not a, a vegetarian either. I <laughs> I grew up as a Catholic in South India, which is a an odd uh, concept in itself um, uh, when, when we look at cross-sectional metrics in terms of health we don't really see that much of a difference I think I haven't looked at the the, the latest data uh, between vegetarianism and health uh, have you seen anything
1: well, I've seen a lot but it's all partisan you know the um there are groups that promote studies that show that um, eating meat is bad for your health, and and there's evidence to the contrary as well. I think it's pretty clear that eating processed meat is oh, yeah. clearly bad for life expectancy, um, and uh, to a lesser extent, red meat. I think the evidence is pretty strong of red meat. So I I try to eat more fish and chicken and tofu, but um, but still, I you know I had steak yesterday, so.
0: Yeah, yeah, a lot of people don't get the utilitarian argument, you know, Peter was making the same argument on the show there, Uh, but the utilitarian argument is a conceptual sort of an argument. Uh, I have very educated PhD holding people and I consider myself to be utilitarian myself, um, but they don't get it either. Uh, I say, well, why are we so worried about the 8.4 billion people? I mean, this seems like a lost cause, right? And just think about your neighborhood, uh, which is sometimes difficult to sort of defend. Well, yes. I mean, I don't think,
1: as with values in general, I don't think that there's any way to argue why utilitarianism is self-evidently the better ethics. Um, It either makes sense to you or it doesn't. But I think that there, the attempting to do public policy with any other ethical framework really doesn't work very well. Um, if you have what's called a deontological framework or the idea that there are absolutes, um, they come into conflict. You know, if, my, if everybody has an absolute right to their property, how does that allow you to adjudicate property disputes? You know, those kinds of things are um, uh, an absolute right to the integrity of your body, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I think utilitarianism makes sense to me uh, as the only way to pursue public policy. But then the question is, well, what is the utility we're trying to maximize? And there I think you can get more sophisticated because I've always been a fan of, for instance, John Stuart Mill, who argued that it's not simply pleasure. If pleasure is all we care about, we may be in a decade or two in a world in which everybody can take a pleasure pill and you don't have to worry about anything else. You just make sure everybody has those pleasure pills. And that's a dystopian, everybody understands that that's a dystopian world. We don't wanna live in that world. Um, so why is that a dystopian world? Well, because there are other things that we want to maximize about human personalities. And so I've been very att- attracted to Marty Ascend's uh, work, for instance, on capability a theory, which basically argues that there are many human capabilities that we want to maximize. and it's it's difficult to come up with quantitative measurements for public policy purposes um, of how to measure things like our capacity to play or our capacity for friendship or things like that. But it is uh, possible to talk about it in particular circumstances. and and we already are doing it in some circumstances, like with um, the measurement of health outcomes. We say, look, It's not just a a question of whether this particular medical intervention increases survival rates. We also wanna know, can they uh, buy their own groceries? Can they get to the bathroom? Uh, You know, the, the activities of daily living. And so we're already in a context where we're trying to figure out what is the broader scope of what it means to have a good medical outcome besides just surviving or being happy with your surgery or whatever. Um, that we could measure. And we need to do the same thing for society and figure out how to maximize those things. And I think that leads us back to the moral enhancement. It's like, there are ways to imagine a society that um, collectively without being authoritarian, but collectively encouraged more fairness, more intelligence, more compassion and so on.
0: Yeah, that's an important point, uh, Jim. We could talk about this forever, but I just very quickly, I I wrote a piece recently, uh, entitled uh, "Can We Scale Finland?" and um, you know the idea there. Uh, you know, if you look at the six point seven million, I think uh, people there, uh, they always come on top in terms of happiness, which is sort of a squishy metric, one could argue, but it's sort of a holistic metric. Uh, it sort of removes sort of the noise uh, from measurement uh, problems, um, and so yeah. I mean, it's very unclear to me uh, if we can take 6.7 million and uh, spread that to 8.4 billion. It's very unlikely. But what i was trying to get to is: is there something special about small systems um, that could have policies that are very different from the you know the rest of the large uh, context they're embedded in?
1: Well, clearly. People having a sense of control over their own destiny both as individuals but also as collectivities argues in favor of decent as maximal decentralization of decision making as possible. As I've said, I'm for world federalism about the things that really require global cooperation, um, global trade, global uh, environmental controls, g- controls, weapons of mass destruction and so on. Um, potentially space exploration, but I think there are many other things that, um, it clearly makes sense to have controlled at a national, whatever national, as you said, why do we divide nations the way we do? I mean, India is a great example. It's like 50 different, uh, languages and different religions. And it's, there's all kinds of things that would argue for different divisions that were made. And the British at first had Pakistan and, and Bangladesh as part of one country, which was insane. But, you know, so um, a lot of the problems in the world is the mismatch between our political uh, boundaries and the kind of natural uh, boundaries of, uh, that, that people and so, social relations are creating. On the other hand, I am an advocate for post racial, post linguistic, post religious. Um, nations. I, I think one of the wonderful things about the United States, at least in theory, we are a nation that has not made race, religion, language central to national identity in the ways that most countries in the world have. And um, and I would like all nations to move in that direction because you know that for instance the the new law in India that denying uh, citizenship to Muslim immigrants. Um, I think, you know, those kinds of laws around, you know, the the policies that the Han Chinese have towards the Muslims in Xinjiang, all of these are uh, tremendous injustices and they're created by this relationship between the um, ethnicity and the nation state. So I would like us to move away from that. But at any rate, you know, um, for the purposes of people having a sense of connection to and a sense of empowerment through Civic participation, uh, po- political participation, in their local government. Um, there is a certain logic for why that kind of decentralization to that level uh, is a good thing, and and even to the local level. Now, in the United States, you know, we're we're too decentralized because a lot of things that would be done better uh, at a national level are being are, we're attempting to do at a state and, and local level, but.
0: Yeah. So, so I want to finish up with your uh, third piece here, uh, Jim, a socialist approach to disaster preparedness. Uh, so the, you say socialists have historically thought a lot about the catastrophic risks society faces. Today, many DSA chapters have gotten involved in mutual aid to respond to the COVID crisis, generating a debate about how mutual aid fits into socialist socialist work. So, what do you mean by mutual aid here? Uh, I mean um,
1: uh, immature for the most part uh, efforts at local charity work um, that ignore for the most part the existing institutions of charity both uh, governmental and nonprofit for one reason or another um, <laughs> so this was partly a polemic against uh, that kind of activism where which I think there are certain people in the on the political left in the United States who imagined that everything's about to fall apart and therefore if we start handing out free groceries to our neighbors, we will be preparing for the revolution because then they'll come to us for you know guns and, and uh, political direction. But it's also uh, um, an attempt to reflect on the fact that the left has, since at least the Marxist left, um, has thought about the impending collapse of capitalism for a long time in the same way, and be, and partly because of the historical legacy of apocalypticism in our culture, you know that there's this subcurrent of religious apocalypticism. You see, in most cultures around the world, that comes out in certain circumstances, um, and people expect, well, this must be it. This is the, you know, as foretold. We are expecting this bad thing to happen. That can lead to certain negative, you know, not. Preparing to muddle through, but preparing for everything to collapse. Um, you know, the 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 fantasy of the zombie movie is interesting in this context. Why do people? Why are people attracted to the apocalyptic movie or the zombie movie? Things like that. It's like, well, if I woke up tomorrow and I didn't have to go to my job because the world had ended, wouldn't that be cool? It's like maybe for ten seconds that would be cool, but you know, I think we've seen in the last year and a half, the apocalypse is both a lot more, a lot worse than um, the zombie, than those kinds of scenarios and a lot less than those scenarios, right? I, People were hoarding toilet paper, but there really has been very little supply chain problems in the world than one might have expected in a global- It's mostly automated.
0: It's on right. all parts now.
1: Right. So it may be that, you know, you could have uh, even uh, twice as bad or three times as bad a pandemic as this, and things would more or less go along. You know, we'd wear a mask, we'd wait for our vaccines and blah, blah, blah. So that's in that essay, I was trying to make a distinction. It's like, some of you need to think about the fact that you're waiting for everything to collapse. And God knows there's reasons to worry about it. Climate change, Um, uh, economic struggles, uh, you know, new Cold War, et cetera, and the the rise of fascism, the fact that 40% of America denies the legitimacy of the last election, all kinds of interesting things are happening. But mostly I expect that we will be muddling through whatever challenges come. And so what does it mean to engage with uh, needing to expect certain kinds of disasters are going to be more and more frequent floods, climate events, pandemics, um, perhaps civil conflict, um, and not think that the state is going to disappear. Well, one of the things is to look, well, what's the state trying to do already uh, to mitigate these disasters or to respond to disasters? Well, FEMA is one example. Now, FEMA is not a great example because FEMA is underfunded doesn't do what it's expected to do is has unequal uh, you know effects because it, it gets to middle class people better than it gets to poor people and so forth but if you're serious about uh, uh, the emerging disasters and wanting to politically engage with an, a future of emerging disasters you need to be serious about engaging with FEMA not ignoring FEMA and saying, I'm gonna hand out free groceries to the 10 neighbors that are closest to me. And that's that's somehow gonna be a political solution. Trying to get trained by FEMA and be a part of FEMA is a far more significant thing you could do for your community than that. Or just join a church, you know, or uh, participate in a soup kitchen or do something, not just, you know, uh, masturbate in your fantasy of uh, revolutionary uptake.
0: Yeah, I mean that's a really important point, right? Um, do something, uh, but do it um, in the most efficient fashion possible. And uh, I think Peter uh, Singer again had a point. You know, it's just, it's about sort of, I don't know what he called it, um, effective altruism. Um, so so make sure that what you do has the most effect uh, out there and. You know, sometimes it's compelling to go out and help the first person that you find, which is which is good in itself. But you might be able to help a thousand others if you do it in a in a systematic way. Um, you know, through through something that exists. Yeah, I I'm very much,
1: of course, as a ethicist and utilitarian inclined ethicist, um, a fan of the effective altruism logic. I think that the way that it's applied by many effective altruists um, has to take so many things off the table that they don't come up with for you. They end up rationalizing whatever they think the most important thing is, right? If you think that there's a 1% possibility that robots are going to pop out of a box and take over the world and end all human life, well, yeah, you're going to think that's pretty important and that the most effectively altruistic thing anybody can do is give money to people trying to stop that. And that's about half of the effective altruists come to that conclusion. Mm -hmm. I understand how they get there. But if you just put a couple more variables in the mix, you come to different conclusions. You come to the conclusion that the most effective thing you can do for the world, like the Bill Gates Foundation did, uh, this same uh, cost benefit analysis for different kinds of interventions in the developing world. And they said, you know what, Uh, building speed bumps in roads when you look at the number of people who are killed by traffic fatalities around the world, the lowest cost and most effective intervention we can make is to build more speed bumps in roads and slow people down. It doesn't come to most people's minds. It's not a sexy thing to do, right? Um, uh, malaria nets, uh, you know, et cetera, interventions like that. Now, then you add into the equation that a lot of our intervention efforts, so say we try to build speed bumps in Thailand and we give local Thai generals a bunch of money to build speed bumps, what do you think is going to happen to that money? Half of it's going to go into Swiss bank accounts. So then you say, well, if the problem is with changing anything in the world is corrupt and inefficient governments, what do we do about that? Um, and it may be the most effective thing we can do in the world is make sure that governments are accountable and not corrupt around the world. And how do we go about that? And what are the agencies and, and nonprofit organizations that are contributing to that end? Um, so, I think the logic that effective altruism follows pretty much determines the
0: uh, conclusions that they draw. Yeah, so in conclusion, Jim, let me ask you sort of a loaded question. Um, It's always difficult to predict the future, but if you can sort of speculate 50 years from now, um, I think you mentioned, you know, people were very, uh, very worried about population growth I think the latest estimates I've seen is that uh, we're going to peak at about 9.6 billion between 2040 and uh, 2100, and then population is going to drop quite dramatically, very quickly. Um, We might be in a situation that people could be the most valuable resource in the world. Um, So it's not the growth in people that we have to worry about, it's a lack of growth in people. So, so, considering all of the data that we currently have, uh, if you look forward fifty years, what do you see? What what type of a world do you see?
1: Well, I I have tried to get out of the prediction game because <laughs> um, I think, like many futurists, I've begun to recognize the importance of the butterfly effect of black swan events. Um, you know, no one foresaw the collapse of the Soviet Union. Very few people foresaw the two thousand eight financial collapse. Um, you know, very few people foresaw. I, I mean, I started to worry about pandemics in nineteen ninety two when I read uh, Laurie Garrett's *The Coming Plague*, and I taught a course on um, the sociology of infectious disease, where me and the students all picked different infectious diseases and did presentations on them. By the end of that course, we were all you know, paranoid, we have medical student syndrome, we thought we were sick with everything. But I've worried about pandemic disease for a long time. So I wasn't terribly surprised, but still the timing of it, no one knew when these things were going to emerge. Um, So I don't think we can do good prediction, but I'll tell you what I consider the big mega drivers, uh, historical drivers, demography is one. And as you say, The demographic trends have been um, that one of the reasons why the UN has been wrong systematically about demographic projections is that they have uh, systematically assumed that societies, once they got down to uh, uh, 2.1 children per couple rate, that they would stabilize there. And they didn't. Right? Every society that's educating women and giving them Uh, the opportunity to make money in the market or just educating anybody, the parents decide, you know what, there's really less reason to have kids than we thought, and maybe we'll just won't do that, and we'll just uh, live a nice life. Urban Chinese have like half a child per couple. Uh, The Chinese uh, CP has said, forget about the one child, forget about the two child, now have three children. It's like the rest of the Chinese are like, forget it, we don't want to have any kids. Um, so I think we're, what we're going to see is, and now with COVID, who wants to bring a child into our world in COVID? You know, the, the birth rate has dropped precipitously in the last year. So I think we're going to see a very sharp decline in fertility, uh, sharper than demographers projected. Um, we probably, even though COVID has disproportionately killed old people, It's not really had that uh, big of an effect. It it has reduced life expectancy noticeably in the world. By about one year, they say. yeah, Yeah, by about one year. But we'll recover from that pretty quickly, and I believe that there are therapies and technologies that will increase, continue to increase life expectancy. And so what we, I think, can be pretty sure of is that there's going to be an increasingly gray world. Fewer kids, more older people. And that's going to drive a lot of our policy debate it's going to drive generational conflict about the equity of what we're doing for younger people versus older people um, it won't make sense i think to say uh, you know we've already had beginning to have the debate about retirement age but if we have increasing automation it may you know you can say to a 65 year old hey you, you you've been a truck driver your whole life now go out there And find a job. It's like, yeah, but all the trucks are being driven by robots now. So what do I do? Um, So I think we're going to have to have a whole renegotiation of our expectations around social security, universal medicine, uh, education, lifelong education, and so forth. We probably also will be doing a lot of experimentation with encouraging uh, public policies that will support childbearing. Now, Europe has a lot of the policies that I would like to see, you know, uh better um uh family leave policies. They have uh you know, in northern europe at any rate they have access to reproductive medicine for a lot of people through state medicine. Um and still they have a low fertility rate. So I'm not sure that this is going to be a solution, a slam dunk anywhere, but at least you could make it um, Less onerous. You know, if you look at one of the reasons Chinese don't want to have kids is they look at how much it costs in China to uh, provide your kid a decent education through private tutoring and and all the kinds of things that you need to do, and it's prohibitively expensive. And that's another. That's the same reason a lot of American uh, people, of childbearing age, are deciding not to have kids. So. Universal uh, free access to childcare through higher education, I think, is a policy that will. Anyway, the these kinds of issues, these demographic issues, are clearly going to be driving a lot of our politics and uh, our economics, and our and I think it's one of the reasons why there's certain kinds of economic malaise. I think it's one of the reasons why Xi Jinping is tightening the screws. It's because he sees that China's entering into a period of not only great power influence but also internal demographic crisis. And um, the conflict between younger Chinese people and the older people still wedded to the CP uh, is gonna be more and more acute. And so this is gonna drive a lot of things. Technology is obviously gonna drive things, but we don't know how to predict technology, but we know that we're gonna leave, live in an increasingly algorithmic world where um, I think a lot, a lot of the forms of employment of the past are going to be uh, subsumed by these new algorithmic tools and ways of doing things. Um, and, and So I believe that we will have technological unemployment in the future. Now, it's possible that we'll find other ways for, to pay people for things, um, and that things that we currently don't imagine that you could do. Um, I, I'm a fan of a, a YouTube channel where two kids basically um, it's a couple and they get on every day and they read a different Reddit channel and they go through the different memes in a Reddit channel and they talk about the the memes. And it's like, who could have imagined five years ago or 10 years ago that you could make a living um, just talking about third-party content produced on another platform in a video in this way, you know, who would have imagined that? So it's possible that we will all be entertaining ourselves and paying each other to be entertained in the future. But I think there's a certain risk of that kind of a future, certain kind of neo-feudalist possibility. Um, So, uh, and uh, yeah, I I think beyond that, beyond the technological trends and the demographic, it's really hard to say what other things are going to be driving. But yeah, black swan events like uh, like pandemics could knock everything off the rails.
0: Yeah, I mean, personally, Jim, you know, you know, some sense you could simplify it. You know, I think universal basic income is an unavoidable policy uh, given the AI trends that we see. Education and healthcare appear to have such high returns to society. It it is still sort of puzzling. <laughs> Um, why countries haven't gotten onto it. I mean, if there's an investment sitting there that has the highest return for you, your last dollar should go to that, right? I mean, that, that would be the rational policy for most countries. But that don't seem to happen. So so the real question is, will we get leaders <laughs> um, who have more than a few brain cells uh, and, and can... <laughs> and make good policy decisions, That that is still unclear.
1: Yeah, well, one of the forms of futurism that I used to be more uncritically committed to was the eventual success of the democratic form, and I think it's been hard over the last decade. Um, the rise of the relative success of Chinese technocratic authoritarianism or technocratic capitalism, whatever you wanna call it. Um, They certainly think that they're doing better than the West. And I think a lot of other people think they're doing better than the West. It's not not that their their model is that attractive to everybody around the world, but they've certainly uh, put a pause on the inevitability of the success of the democratic form.
0: Yeah, my view, Jim, is that it's a representative democracy. That has the problem. So the, the thousand representatives that we have in Washington, I would argue, probably the most incompetent uh, people. <laughs> and so, so three hundred thirty million people who put thousand people in Washington to make policy, that democracy don't. That democracy doesn't seem to work that well. So we have technology now to go into some sort of a, a direct, demo, uh, direct democracy. So put the policy in front of the people. Let the people select options in their policy, but don't don't send thousand people to Washington to make policies.
1: I think there are real cognitive constraints um, on our ability to participate in policymaking. I think for the average person, um, having the intuition that Team A or Team B is my team is probably as far as they will ever get. Um, so I think. Uh, it's not just education, but also we need to be, I, I have written about and advocated for artificial intelligence tools, which do what you sometimes find on the web. It's like, uh, here's the the 10 candidates you have to choose from. Here's the different positions. Tell, fill out this survey and tell us what your position is on these issues. And we'll tell you which of these candidates is a better fit for you. If you had that kind of artificial intelligence doing that kind of parsing of the world for you on a regular basis, and also telling you about ways that you could make your voice heard or you could participate politically, I think we would have a far stronger democracy. And if you look at the ways that wealthy elites and powerful organizations and corporations already use algorithms, they already have, you know, Google alerts set up for anybody, uh, who's proposing any legislation that might affect their bottom line or sentiment analysis of uh, conversations that might affect their bottom line. So I think we probably will have increasing empowerment through these kinds of tools. Hopefully it'll be more equal empowerment that we have today. And that will expand our capacity. But right now, the plebiscite version of democracy, of uh, direct participation. The places that have pursued it the most avidly are not successes. California is an example. They've made some terrible decisions through plebiscites. Um, You know, that when citizens are just said, well, do you want your taxes to go up or down? They say down, and then they say, well, do you want your social services to go up or down? They say up, and then, you know, because they don't have to reconcile those two things, then the state is in a bind. So I think we we need to be very careful about which things we put into a plebiscite direction. But yes, I do think that that's maximal decentralization that I was talking about earlier, includes decentralizing to the individual as many political decisions as it makes sense to decentralize to them.
0: Right, excellent. This has been great, Jim. Thanks so much for spending time with me on a weekend.
1: Hey, good questions and thanks for asking me on. Thank you.